0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about real estate within this area because there are some conflicting stories about whether we're in a bubble, whether that's dangerous, whether we're not in a bubble. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? All kinds of stuff. We'll talk about it. We'll try and sort through it. We're also talking about space travel, travel to the moon in particular, because China has just brought a rocket back, unmanned, unwomaned, unpersoned, but they have brought moon rocks back. It seems as though we may be heading into another space race, are we? And, and we'll be talking about the Olympics and Russia and James Harden and all kinds of other things. Cause there's lots and lots and lots of other things going on. Stick around. Enjoy
1: today on the Scott Radley show on 900 CHML,
0: a couple of very interesting real estate stories made the news in the past 48 hours and each would have been very interesting all on their own. But what makes this particularly fascinating is that they seem to butt heads with each other a little bit, or at least send messages that I'm not really sure which one I'm supposed to fully believe, or if they can live in harmony together. Let me explain. One of them says that several markets in this country are seeing very dangerous, overinflated bubbles. And at the top of that list that the story mentions, Moncton and Hamilton, both of which are now listed as highly vulnerable. And that's from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, which says that the jump in home prices seen in many cities over the summer and fall are way beyond what could be justified by income levels and population growth. All right, so we've got a big problem. The other story says that we've had doomsday predictions about the housing market for months and years now, people telling us that the bubble is about to burst and they have been wrong again and again and again. And in fact, some of these predictions have come from the same Canadian, Canada mortgage housing that now warns of these same dangers ahead. I want to bring in the co-author of the second piece. His name is Mertesa Hayder. He's an associate professor of real estate management at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. Mertesa, thanks for doing this today. really appreciate it.
2: Um, my pleasure.
0: Um, I guess the easy guess, and, and I am not an economist. I'm not a housing expert. I am someone who... I'm not who, an economist either, but continue. Okay. <laughs> but you are a housing expert. And the easy thing for an average person to look at when they see house prices where they are right now and they've kept going up and up and up is to come to the conclusion that at some point they have to go down but do they or do they have to go down a lot is that is that inevitable well it
2: depends um, upon the location it depends upon how much the prices could rise uh, the, the the reality is that um, ignoring CMHC's advice would not be a great idea. I'm not uh, nowhere in my um, column today, in today's National Post, that my co-author and I, Stephen Moranis and I, argue that ignore CMHC. That's certainly, certainly not the intent. The intent of our piece is to indicate that there's so much uncertainty that goes into developing a forecast And there's so much subjectivity that a modeler or a forecaster or a team of forecasters put into generating a forecast that it may look like a very reasonable scientific uh, number, but the reality is that it is a product of all the assumptions and all the subjectivity that has gone into it. And therefore, when you look and compare forecasts, they seldom agree, and often they they end up not being uh, right. Um, the the person for I would say the godfather of forecasting is George Box, who is known for Box Jenkins technique, um, which is sort of the typical time series model forecasting technique. And George Box said, all models, all forecasts are wrong. Some are useful. So when we look mm. at these numbers, we should say that there's there's some utility in it, and 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 we should make our own informed opinion from it. But to take a forecast. And take it as gospel truth would be a mistake.
0: Well, one of the challenges I would assume is that whenever you're going to make a forecast, some of what you're going to base it on is what we've seen in the past, what's happened in the past. And so historical precedent would guide us in determining what might happen in the future. The challenge with that is no circumstance at the exact moment is exactly the same. So you can look to the past, I'm assuming, but it doesn't necessarily, especially in this area, guarantee the same result is going to happen.
2: Very true. I mean, th- think about the fact that everyone who generated a forecast for the economy or housing market in January or February of this year uh, had no idea what would happen in March when COVID-19, right. and the whole economy, the global <laughs> right. economy, went in, into a, into a downturn and has not recovered fully since then. And and there was no way for any forecaster or any pundit to have known what just just was around the corner uh, as far as economy is concerned. So yeah, looking at the past is a good way of looking at what has happened in the past, But to confuse the past uh, to be the 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 lens into the future, i I think that's a very dangerous thing that we do it and we take it and we accept it all the time. Um, uh, as um, when people say, well, we are expecting the forecast to be there's another thing, you know, we are getting used to it. When somebody says, well, next, uh," the economists were expecting 100,000 more jobs being created, but the numbers is down. So they have revised their estimates, which basically said their forecast is something. The results came out to be completely different. So they have adjusted their forecast and revised it. So that should tell you that the forecasting is more of an art. Not a science, and there's questions about bubble—you um, shouldn't discount them. You know, when, when CMSC says that the prices have risen out of step with income, that's not a forecast. That's a that's a fact, and and that's not to say um, that um, th- there is any speculation in that statement. The speculation is in the statement that it's a bubble and it will burst, and when it will burst, only you know, only only someone gaze looking at the crystal ball would know. So, But there are two elements of the information that you started the the show with. One element said that the prices have risen in Hamilton um, out of step with the median income um, in the region. And that's a fact that you should not ignore this. Um, What what comes as to um, subjectivity is to say that this will not continue or this will reverse in the future. So if you are a home buyer today, now you have to make a decision. Should I buy now? Am I buying it at the peak of the market so that markets may tumble tomorrow and then I, I have to live with a loan where the house's value is less than the loan that I've borrowed? Or you say that, no, the fundamentals are strong. Hamilton's housing market was undervalued for so many decades right? being next to Toronto, the economic engine of the nation, and now people are realizing that Hamilton is a great place to live. You really don't have to be cramped into a one-bedroom apartment. You can actually live in Hamilton and, and telecommute to your work in Toronto. I don't know which part of the story is true, but there are many things that are in the motion up in the, up in the air, and therefore I, I seldom get excited about the, or sometimes get scared about the, the conversation about bubbles, because bubbles are something that you only see Um, really, when they have busted. before, Mertesa,
0: let me jump in for a second. When we look to the past to guide us in what's going to happen, if you go back to the 50s or 60s or 70s or even into the 80s, there was still lots of land, lots of room within the Toronto area, the southern Ontario, all these areas. There was lots of room to still build houses and expand and grow. There's not now. There is a. There is much less supply. There is much more pressure. There's not as many available units, and our country is still growing in population, either by birth or by immigration. We still have growing numbers of people. Does that not kind of eliminate some of the concerns about it just being a bubble? And say, no, this is just our reality now that we're always going to have pressure for homes.
2: Well, yeah. Well, when you know when pressure for homes uh, happens, is when you have a growing population. And your rate of home building declines, or it does not, is out of step with the increase in the population. Our um, increase in population is immigration-driven. We, our net fertility rate is negative, in fact. We, we grow in population, so most of our growth comes from immigration, so that's a fact. The other thing that you mentioned about Toronto is also a fact that the land... Develop, developable land has uh, been developed, and there is this NIMBYism, very strong NIMBYism in Toronto that does not let its existing land to be developed at a greater intensity or higher density. So, which means that the potential to grow or build more housing in Toronto is is declining. And the only thing Toronto has built, or I would say 80 percent or more of the least recent construction has been high rises or mid rises, and very little of the low rise housing. But at the same time, you look at you, you, you look at Hamilton, you and you say. What has changed in the last seven, nine months and what has changed is teleworking. Working from home has just opened up the the periphery of Toronto and cities like Toronto. So you look at New York, you look at London in England, you look at all these very busy cities, very high demand cities. And there, people who have been living in those tight quarters, they realize now, because of teleworking, they can be at a greater, higher distance or at some distance from the work. They don't have to commute every day. They have to be in the commuting shed, but rather than right next door to their office building. And then you look at cities around, so you start looking at Burlington and Hamilton and Ajax and Whitby and Vaughan. And these places are good, and Hamilton happens to be one of the good places to live. It is within an hour of Toronto. You don't have to commute every day. It has Canada's most research intensive university. McMaster University is one of the finest in Canada. You look at the uh, healthcare system and good hospitals. You have got a decent sized downtown, a variety of uh, uh, restaurants and, and, and opportunities for plays and whatnot. So you have everything at tons of water. And yes, you are much less costly. On a per square foot base, you're much less expensive than similar properties in Toronto, so yes, there's a bubble let me say a rephrase I hate the word bubble i don't I don't buy the bubble, <laughs> bubble theory, okay. but I say the prices are accelerating for the housing, and housing is fixed. Housing cannot relocate, right? You, the homes in Hamilton are the homes in Hamilton. They won't move. But the interest in Hamilton, buyers are not fixed. They are not geocoded to one postal code. So you may have people looking at Hamilton from other parts of, of, of the greater Toronto area or even in the greater go- Golden Horseshoe, which means that somehow people have decided that this place is going to be an attractive place. And, and so the demand may be generated, uh, being generated from outside of the place. And that could be one reason Um, it would be for the benefit of homeowners who are willing to sell. It would uh, put pressure, affordability pressure on those who are residents of Hamilton and would have to compete for homes um, with others who are not part of the Hamilton area. But that's happening. That has been happening in in British Columbia and Vancouver for for decades now that has been happening in, in other places. Once you become attractive, once people realize that's a good place, um, then you would see these price escalations. Prices increase because of an interest in demand. So what the municipality could do, what the city of Hamilton could do and say, if this is really happening, that's your signal. Encourage, facilitate builders to build more housing rather than trying to come up with the regulations to curtail the demand. Try to make the best use of it and create more housing and get more, more property tax rather than limiting the possibility of revenue scenarios increase your revenue
0: options it is a uh, it is a fascinating topic for sure and people around here who have either tried to get in the market and are pulling out their hair because it's just going up and up and up uh or those who own property and are sitting pretty right now saying hey keep going up and up and up um it it is clearly happening in this area for sure mertesa hater uh from ryerson university thank you so much for the time today really appreciate it
2: my pleasure take care
0: it is, uh, we, we know, we know all about this market. And as he says, he hates the word bubble. Um, yeah. It, what's going to be truly fascinating is once the economy, once we get out of this pandemic a bit and we see with the economy, if a lot of people have lost their jobs, will that drive down prices a little bit? Or on the flip side, if all of a sudden everyone who's been hoarding their money starts spending like crazy, does the housing market get even hotter? We're, we'll be watching. We will be watching because something it, it, something is always happening but something will be happening you're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 chml we heard this week in the last couple of days that China has returned an unmanned unwomaned whichever uh ship from the moon to Earth this week carrying now a bunch of new fresh moon rocks I don't know if moon rocks can be fresh but these ones are as fresh as you can get uh, and some core samples from two or three meters down into the the moon's surface. Uh, I'm not sure the significance of this. I really am not. Uh, I'm not sure what we might learn now that we didn't learn from moon rocks collected in 69 and 70 and 71 and 72, I guess. Um, it's, it's a little mysterious and it's a little interesting and there's a lot going on here. Uh, last week, maybe the week before, we had Dr. Jesse Rogerson on, assistant professor at York University with a specialty in astronomy and astrophysics. He was fantastic, and I said, you know what, let's get him back on today to talk about this. Uh, Dr. Rogerson joins us. Thank you for doing this again.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me back. Well, okay, so
0: I, I'm a little puzzled by this whole thing, because um, l- let's get into a few of these things. Uh, there, Nobody would be expecting, I don't think, a change in the makeup of the moon's surface in the past 50 years. That that would not be an, an expectation that something has changed because of atmosphere or anything else on, on the moon, right?
1: True. But we did only get samples from a couple of places before. That'd be like sampling the, the dirt um, here in North America and then going to Australia and expecting it to be the same um, because there's different processes. The rocks were created differently. Um, one of the key differences um, between the missions from NASA and the missions from the USSR, because they did some uh, lunar roving um, back in the 70s, the, the samples that were returned were... Dated to be the rocks that came back were dated to be about three billion years old. So those a pretty old rocks. Now, the where the Chinese landed in this pl- place called uh, Mons Rumker is expected to be some of the youngest rocks on on the moon. They don't they don't know for sure, but they think it's some of the youngest rocks and soil at about a billion years old. So that's a two billion year difference between the age of the rocks um, that that the americans and the soviets had and now the ones that the chinese have, have brought back and what you get from okay that... now
0: wait a sec now i'm really puzzled because if <laughs> the moon is said to have as part of you know whatever to have broken off as a chunk at one time how could there be a two billion year difference between rocks at two different parts of the moon
1: oh god that's a great question because the moon used to be volcanically active so after it there was this huge cataclysmic event the the moon um, used to be a part of us, and a big, huge, Mars-sized object smashed into Earth and created the moon um, in orbit around us. And then for a long time, the moon was cooling down, and it was actively volcanic. There was lava below the surface that would erupt onto the surface, maybe through volcanic activity or through impacts from meteorites. And that lava would spill out onto the surface, and it would, re- what, we, what we say in geolo- geological terms, it would resurface the, the, what we look at on the moon. And so that once that lava solidifies and then becomes rock, that would be a younger rock than elsewhere on the moon. And so you can have, depending on uh, the, the activity of the moon at the time, or depending on an impact in the area, you can have rocks that are younger. And then this can tell you a lot about what the moon was doing over the billions of years of its history.
0: Okay. Now I'm getting way off track here, but you've got me intrigued by this. Lava is a magma? It's liquid rock. So, wouldn't the age, whether it was in a liquid form or a solid form, wouldn't it still be the same age?
1: Well, the the, the individual constituents, I suppose, would have come from the same place, but the the rock that's formed from it um, has different chemical makeup,
0: and okay. so you can tell okay. its age
1: based on that.
0: This though, okay, so we may find some things and this seems like, and I didn't even see, I didn't look it up today, what the cost and China probably never announced what the cost of this was. I'm sure they didn't, but this is a huge cost to go get 10 pounds or whatever it is of (laughs) moon rocks. Um, is it, I mean, I know as a scientist, I know as someone who studies this, probably there's no value you would put on it. I mean, there's, there's no such thing as too much to get it. But is it, is it worth the cost? Are we, can we learn enough that it would make it worth billions of dollars to get there?
1: That is a really important question that we always need to be asking ourselves about when we talk about space exploration. And like earlier this week, there was an announcement about the Americans going back to the moon and Canada going, back to, the, going to the moon with them. Um, which was super cool. Um, yeah, what I would say to that is, it's not just about the individual science that you learn. So yes, we, we can spend, we could spend decades, like with permanent habitats on the moon, learning about its surface and its geological history. And that would be really interesting. But there's other things that are important here. It's not just about the rocks that come back. It's about the technological innovation that happens as a result of attempting to get the rocks back. And what ends up happening there is you get a lot of really interesting spin-off technology and interesting um, impact here on the planet. So like, for instance, the Apollo program back in the 60s and 70s and the Russian program back in the 60s and 70s completely changed the face of technology in in the modern era. Like, there's, there's technology that came out of those programs that we are still using today. Like, it completely influenced computers and cell phones and microchips and 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 engineering of materials like the list goes on so if we had not attempted to go to the moon in the 60s and 70s technology would be completely different nowadays and uh, arguably we wouldn't be um, as far ahead as we are now and so that's one thing um building on these missions and going back to the moon and and digging down we we're, we're Learning how to be uh, good scientists on the moon. We're learning um, how to solve problems that we normally wouldn't know how to solve. But we're also another really interesting piece here, is that it also is setting the stage for exploring further out. So if if you believe in the space exploration, the way you want, if you want to get out to the Mar to Mars, or you want to get out to Jupiter and Saturn and its moons that are out there, you need stages, you need levels, and you need growing. And so lunar science is the next step. The first step would say would be the International Space Station. Lunar science is the next step where and that's how we get bigger and better and stronger and then move on to the next step after that.
0: And by the way, I should ask you this, lots of stuff online, unsurprisingly, Dr. Rogers, and lots of stuff saying the Chinese faked this whole thing and it didn't really happen <laughs> and this is all... Uh, it, I'm assuming you believe they did it.
1: Yes, they, the Chinese have been growing their space program for quite a long time, actually. They've been quite successful um, in low Earth orbit They've been launching their, they have their own, um, uh, line, I guess, of space stations that they've been launching up over the last, uh, 15 or 20 years. And they've had humans that they've been launching up to their own space station because they're not a part of the international space station that other countries are a part of. And they've been getting really good at this. And they've also done a lot of, um, demonstration of their technology at the moon over the last few years. Um, this is Chung, five that just returned, but that's the fifth mission of, Chang'e 1, 2, 3, and 4 that um, demonstrated a whole bunch of abilities. So the Chinese have been getting incredibly good at at space exploration and indeed are leading the pack when it comes to lunar exploration right now.
0: Well, when you say leading the pack, that implies there is a leader and there's someone who is behind, and we know (laughs) where the States The states wants to put someone on the moon again in four years. This all starts to sound like the beginning of a renewed space race, is it?
1: Yes and no, and I would say it and so the space race from the sixties and seventies, that one was all about that was steeped in the Cold War, right? That was really sure. about United Military States. Military and, and politics and not just science. Exactly. Whereas this is a space race that's happening right now, but it's very different. It's much more akin to the the the, the race that was happening or the bubble that was happening is the word, I guess, of the internet in like the early two thousands. When people are now there's there's two things. People are realizing how important space is, uh, or at least are able to at least put into fruition their plans. Um, in the space is important. There's a lot of resources we can use. There's a lot of things we can do with it in terms of observing Earth for, say, climate change, um, telecommunications for connecting with people. There's a uh, you can do space-based internet. You could do space-based aircraft monitoring. Um, really inter- interesting stuff. And we're and also on the uh, along with that. The price of everything is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. We're getting, in another way of saying it is, we're getting better at going to space. And so we, it's not just um, countries that are doing it, um, it's multiple new countries that are getting involved in, in the space um, exploration India, the United Arab Emirates, um, there's China, and so on. And then there's also private companies that are getting really heavily involved in sure. space exploration. And as a result, you're seeing this sort of bubble, this boom of because there's a lot of room for people to do some really innovative things and so it is a race but it's not the same style of race as the 60s and 70s
0: all right so let me throw a little bit of a hiccup into what you just said because i don't i don't think you're wrong for sure but you know we may not be in this same kind of space race where it's about we're better than you we're more powerful than you all that stuff that the cold war was about but what happens if China lands someone on the uh, lands a person on the moon before the states gets up there again in twenty twenty four? I'm not sure it doesn't change that discussion a little bit.
1: Uh, that I, I mean, I see what you're saying. There's um, the relationship between, say, the United States and China is very different and strained in comparison to, um, say, other countries that the United States is, uh, has relationships with. Certainly, the partners of the International Space Station. But I I, I don't I don't think it will. Change the conversation so much that it's about that that I don't know political strain. Um, I think it will stay focused on the science and stay focused on um, the the commercial partners that are getting involved, like SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and Boeing and others. Um, there's a couple of really great companies in, in Canada that just got some lunar contracts from the Canadian Space Agency as a result of all of this is that, that that's happening. Uh, I think yes. There is political stuff always involved with space because it's about big countries working together. But I think the real big story with anything related to space these days is how how much it is an economic boom for us. Mm. The amount of mm. money that gets into cool, like the the cool jobs that are created from this, with MDA creating Canadarm three, um, all these companies that are popping up to support the, the new space industry. This is, I think, the big story here. And so China lands a uh, human first, you know, good for them. United States won't be far behind and other countries won't be far behind that. And it'll be hopefully um, a lot more, um, I don't know, nicer, a lot nicer than the way it was in the 60s yeah. and 70s.
0: Uh, as you, and by the way, about the political side of this, uh, China said uh, yesterday or today that they will share this moon rock, share samples with the world, except for the States. Where the States, <laughs> you don't get any. So, you know, some of this is going on. Uh, last True. thing, one of the things China has said is in addition to this, it wants, because you've said it's not part of the International Space Station, it wants to build its own version of the International Space Station. Do you think that truly happens? Is that is that coming?
1: Uh, yes. I think that at the moment, there doesn't seem to be a pathway between the international consortium that that is the ISS, which is Canada, United States, Russia, uh, uh, Japan, and uh, Europe. So there doesn't seem to be a pathway between them, and China is not going to stop. They want to be a a um, a space-faring nation, and indeed they are. are. So I think they're going to go and they're going to build the stations they want and the moon bases they want. They will do it. Um, I am hopeful that eventually, beyond what I can see, that we get to a point where... China and the other countries can work together. At the moment, there is some international, like there's basically laws in the United States that say that you can't collaborate with China. Yes, and yes. So there's, there's a lot of legal red tape that needs to be figured out, but th- that same legal red tape needed to be figured out in the 60s and 70s in order for the United States and Russia to work together. And so it was done. Um, and I, I am hopeful that it can be done for China as well, and then we can all be a little bit more international and take those big steps together.
0: Fascinating stuff, uh, Doctor Jesse Rogerson from York University. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us again.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Let me bring in Baba O'Neill, our guest. I call him our guest. He's Baba. Everyone knows Bubba. Good, good, good,
3: to, good, to chat with you. I do have to say before we get going, though, congratulations. I thought you did an awesome job uh, yesterday with uh, you know one of my favorite franchises and, and talking to that uh, to, to Mr. Moines there, Blake Moines. Uh, out of Burlington Hamilton, uh, on the, the bachelor basketball. guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was fun. I, I He's a good, was he was really good. That was a good, I thought he was great. I thought you asked him some really good questions. It was good. Well oh,
0: thank you. I, you know what he was, uh, I don't know him. We've never met, but he, uh, came across to me like a good dude. He was, he was a lot of fun. He'd be a good guy to hang out with. And, uh, I would have a coffee. I don't know what he would drink, but, uh. Well, no, it might yeah, not well, be a coffee.
3: Absolutely, the the the, the uncensored chat uh, where you could ask some even deeper questions that we wouldn't be able to put on TV or radio would it be really interesting.
0: Maybe we'll do. We'll see if Jeff Story, the uh, station manager here, the program manager, would <laughs> allow me to do an after midnight, honest, more honest, more in depth stuff, and we'll we'll play it after midnight and see what see how that goes. Um, Couple things I want to get to you with today. By the way, if you're just tuning in and you don't know, if you're the one person in town that doesn't know who Bubba is, CHCH sports guy, um, two stories in particular. Maybe, and depending on time, I might get to a third one. But uh, news came out today that Russia has been banned from using its name, its flag, and its anthem at the next two Olympics and any world championships for the next two years. This is because of, again, more administrative systemic doping or covering up or not cooperating with WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency and all the rest. But but look, it's really complicated because you're going to penalize the athletes if you go any further than this. At the same time, how many times does Russia have to get dragged in front of the tribunal and get caught for doing stuff before somebody does something serious?
3: Well, I, I mean, okay, I had to look really deep into this and uh, what today's news really was. Because uh, at first when I saw, I was like, okay, what's new about this? So I guess at the end of the day, what this was, was Russia appealed, uh, the four-year ban, right? So today's decision comes from the court of arbitration. Because the, um, the IOC and, of course, the uh, – what's the drug panel name um, – I can't remember. The Wada. World, the, the Wada, Wada, World Wada, Anti-Doping Wada, Agency, Wada, yes, with Dick the Pound. To four years. So basically, the, the appeal now is cut, cut in half. So I'm okay with this um, because what it does now, it does allow Russian athletes that can prove that they're clean to basically compete as independents. And as you said, no flag, no anthem, but they do get that moment of glory. And if they're clean, hardworking athletes, which I believe there are thousands of in Russia, I'm okay with that.
0: Uh, and I agree with that. But let me just jump in for one second because we had back in Sochi, and if anyone's seen, what was that movie? Um, uh, the, the one that's on Netflix still. um Oh, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, who flew too close to the sun? Uh, Icarus, if you watch the movie Icarus and it's a great documentary, you learn the story of what happened at Sochi with this, this colossal state run program to cheat. I mean, that's what it was. Well now, last year the the Russian agency uh was ruled non-compliant again last year. And so here's to your point. The reason I mentioned all that baba, I agree with you that there are clean athletes in Russia. Absolutely there are. Probably most of them. But when you when your governing body is doing stuff like this, it becomes essentially impossible to distinguish who is clean and who is dirty. So we can't know, the people who should be the most ticked off are the clean athletes in Russia who are now saying, well, how can I possibly prove that I'm clean when you've essentially made it so that everybody is guilty now?
3: We can't tell. But but then you turn it around the other way and it's like, I'm guilty before you've even proven innocent. And And maybe they've lost that right but that's the athletes right and you know this punishment has been going on for a while um it will continue on you know there will be no participation for the upcoming when you know hopefully if we do get the games the summer games in Beijing it'll go on for the winter games sorry the winter games in Beijing and the summer games in Tokyo you know so i mean how much longer is it going to go on and you're right cheating cheaters never prosper and they shouldn't prosper but it's been going on a long time um, I think Russia has certainly been made an example of, and it 's not just the Olympics as well too. I think everyone has to understand there too we 're looking at you know euro competitions we 're looking at all international competitions. so again, uh, I think at some point you have to you have to try and rebuild the trust factor here um, because again, I think you said the key words there this is a government run thing. Um, Remember, you know, we don't live in Russia. I don't know if a lot of these athletes were forced to use drugs. I mean, these are things we just don't know about. Um, You know, remember, things are run very differently there. It's just not as democratic as we are here in Canada. So very, very difficult situation. I think the point was made, and let's kind of get on with it. It
0: has made it impossible, as I say, the, the, impo- the difficult part of this, among other things, it's made it impossible to know who is really clean or who is really dirty because once the government starts getting involved and sneaking samples in and out and everything else and overseeing this stuff, as opposed to, look, when we had Ben Johnson and the Dublin inquiry, that was a horrendous scab that we slowly peeled off our wound in front of the whole
3: world. But as a you country, know you know, I got to, Sorry, Scott. I love you. But I, I got I, I will. I, I when I hear that, I always turn my head to that because I've never believed that. I think the world opinion of Canada never really changed. I think the people of I think people look, think thought that way of Ben Johnson. But I don't think that, it, you know, I think Canada took that news harder than anywhere else around the world. Oh, 100%. Right? 100%. So I, I, I think that, that was more of our own identity issues and problems, and, you know, and to the point where some people started to say, oh, he's not Canadian, he's, he's Jamaican, right? Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah. So, so I thought that was a lot of horse crap there, more so on our side, more so than the, what the world thought of us. And you know, and then, God bless him, Ben Johnson, sorry, Donovan Bailey did what he did, and then you know, we're, we were, we're redeemed! We're redeemed! Ah, come on. You
0: know the, the, What the Dubbin inquiry did, I, I, look, you're right. We took it way harder than anyone else in the world. You're 100% right with that. And I don't even know how much the rest of the world really paid all that much attention to it. My point was that because we did that and we tortured ourselves more than anyone else because we had tied our cart so tightly to Ben Johnson and Charlie Francis and all those guys. The point was we showed in our country, that if we find someone who is cheating, we're not gonna necessarily protect our own. We're gonna deal with it and we're gonna, we, I think we showed if nothing else, and it was painful, we gave ourselves credibility. Whereas what you're seeing in Russia and some other places, if the government won't even deal with their own people, you make everybody suspicious. You make, and you cast suspicion on all of your athletes, as opposed to turning to the ones who are really guilty and saying, this guy, this guy, this guy, this girl, this girl, this girl they cheated. All the rest of our athletes, though, are clean. I think people look at Canadian athletes and probably believe that Canadian athletes are clean, and a lot of that is because we dealt with it so severely when it happened.
3: Well, I think two things just quickly there on what had happened there, and of course, the Ben Johnson thing was the the biggie. Remember, too, you're looking at a period in time, in history, where drug use is rampant, and the usage of, of steroids at that time was far ahead of the detection um, methods that we certainly have now today. So I think I, I've almost—I ha- I hate to say it—because you're right. It was such a historical thing for us in this country. But in some ways, I've bypassed it. I've gone by that, and I—and this is where I am right now with the Russian thing here too. Because are we going to feel any different if that, if if that appeal? was reversed, and it was for the full four years, which already I think a year has been served, would we feel any different than when they actually do get it um, reinstated? Like, do we all of a sudden say, okay, now, yeah, we're, I think they're going to be okay now, or like, are we going to trust them any more or any less now, Scott?
0: No, uh, but I'll tell you this. Uh, I've had him on the show. Uh, I, I talked to Jesse Lumsden someday right. who competed in bobsleigh where you're working all year to shave hundreds of a second off your time. You're in the gym and you're doing everything. And then, you know, you start to learn or suspect that people in other countries are doing it with a fast track illegal system. Y- you talk to the athletes. I think they would say, this is not nearly sufficient for the stuff that happened but you know what? Look, the IOC. I understand the IOC. The last thing they want to do is completely ban one of the biggest countries in the world from their games because that's money. And, and we all know the IOC. They, love they may say they may say they're all about the children of the world coming together for peace and harmony in sports.
3: Kaching kaching. We know what well, it's about. No doubt. I, in my, in in my world, they rank they rank first, just behind FIFA just behind people as, as, as crooked and I'll say it, right? Well, I out. mean, I don't know if they're crooked, but they sure, they, they,
0: they do it for, you know, the, there's big money in this. And so, uh, let me switch over to something else, which I find is another fascinating story. I sent you a copy of this this morning. I don't even, you've been busy today. I don't know if you got a chance to read this story. Um, it, it involves the Houston Rockets and James Harden, who is yes. their a huge star? I, I'd,
3: actually, and, I'd actually read that yesterday.
0: Okay. And it's a story from ESPN and what the story basically says, and we heard this, we've seen this with other athletes in other sports. James Harden is not the first, but the, the, let me just read the first two paragraphs of the story from ESPN. The Houston Rockets culture in the James Harden era, which bridges two owners and now four head coaches might be best summed up by a former staffer's three words, whatever James wants. And, the story goes on and it's it's an indictment of the organization and to some degree of James Harden as well. But it goes on that this guy, because he was the superstar in a league and a sport that is superstar driven, he pretty much got to call whatever shots he wanted to call. He wanted to go away for to ch- charter a jet and go party in Vegas on off days. Fine. Mispractice. Fine. Whatever. And they let him do it. This has been going on to some degree or another, because as I say, Bubba, the NBA is such a star-driven league. Do you think that we are at the precipice of this beginning to change a little, that this hardened story is going to make teams a little less willing to let their superstars call all the shots?
3: Mm, No. I think it's it depends on the situation. I think that's a very individual situation, and you know you're looking at you know a player right now in James Harden who wants out of Houston. A lot of this has to do with who the guy that brought him there, and that's Daryl Morey, who is the I think he he was a general manager for a decade uh, with the Houston Rockets, and basically, let's be honest, he lured him here. He lured him to Houston and gave him the you know financially everything he needed and the general manager sets the tone uh, and that's you know Daryls a, Morey's a very good general manager the Houston Rockets are one of the better franchises i mean they haven't won but they're always competing they're always in the playoffs james harden is a three-time nba scoring champion so he treated him as the superstar and I think that's the way, and I think you're going to start to see this, too. I think you're, it's already started. Not so much in the NBA. I think it's already existing. You're going to start to see that in the National Hockey League as well, too, because players right now have more rights than they've ever had, and you know what? And for if you're an anti-owner kind of guy, maybe you're happy with it. If you're an owner kind of guy, you don't like it, but I think it's trending that way where the actual athletes in a, in a number of sports now have more control over, one, where they want to play, and two, kind of how they conduct themselves as long as they show up, play, and perform. But
0: we've also heard another story that's of not exactly the same. It's not nearly to the same degree, but we heard rumblings a few weeks ago from the Los Angeles Clippers organization that Kawhi Leonard and, uh, um, what's Paul his George. name? Who was Paul George, that they got special treatment and some of the guys on that team we're not really thrilled with it. I, I, I do start but to think end, to you're always going to, the stars are always going to get special treatment, right. but I do think that they may start to rein it in just a little bit and say, look, you've got to at
3: least be
0: part of the team here.
3: So then if you, and if you, and but if you don't like it too much then you say, get rid of me, trade me because they were, Scott, I think, and I, I know you know this, no matter what the situation is, I don't care what the sport is. If you are a good player, if you have talent, you will always be wanted somewhere. And that is a, that maybe in itself is an issue because someone will always want your services or someone will always believe they can fix the reclamation project. And we can fix him, we'll alter him, we'll take care of him, we'll change his attitude. So I think that nothing will ever change here. You're either a prima donna or you're not.
0: It does make me, you know, the the interesting, one of the interesting parts about the story on top of everything else is, as you've just mentioned a moment ago, James Harden wants out of Houston. And as this story comes out, boy, it seems like it makes it harder to trade the guy because what team wants to take on this headache? And so, you know, it it almost looks in a way like all the former staffers have come out to undercut the Rockets and completely eliminate his trade value. Um, But, but at the same time, Um, what, what I find fascinating about this is the guys in sports, not just the NBA and not just today, the guys in sports who have been the absolute superstars, who have also been the guys who are the hardest working, most team guys. And even today, like you never that I, anyway, I never hear it. You never hear this from about LeBron James, for example, he's the guy who's on the court. He's the hardest worker. He's there first. He's working in the gym all the time. Wayne Gretzky, you know, the story was the hardest working guy in practice. It it is amazing to me that you have two, maybe not amazing, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but two such differing views of what superstar status
3: affords you, depending on who the person is who has that. You know, I I agree with you, but I'll challenge you here a little bit here. We'll use LeBron James, because I don't think you can compare Wayne Gretzky and the two. You're talking about two different eras and totally different times, and of course two different sports. But as I said, I'll I'll stand by this. I think hockey is in a big change with this right now. LeBron James, I think we would be foolish to believe that he hasn't built himself up a, a, a certain amount of privilege. But with that said, he's earned it. He's the biggest thing in the NBA going and has been for a number of years. But when you look beneath the surface, I'm sure there are plenty of privileged things he enjoys, whether it's showing up to practice or showing up to practice and saying, I'm not going to practice today, or saying, you know what, I'm coming off the court right now. Uh, we've heard several times that when LeBron is on the court, um, when, when, when coaches call plays, he changes them immediately. Right. So I, I agree with you. But I do believe that LeBron is. I want to compare him to James Harden. That would be be ludicrous. But I think there's privilege there.
0: Well, and how much did the um, Milwaukee just sign Giannis Antetokounmpo for? Two hundred and twenty-eight
3: 220, or two hundred and twenty-eight point two million dollars over the next five years. And if you combine a salary for what he's going to make this year, which I believe is a little, little, little close to 28000000 million, he'll make two sixty-five if he stays there for the next five years, six years. And what that does,
0: if you're the team um, and he says, I'm not practicing today, what are you going to do? I mean, honestly, because w- w- guys now uh, we're not, and with this, we're not talking about the guys who are down on the bench a little bit and further down the bench and they're, you know, just wanting to make their career and stick around the absolute super, super, superstars. If one of them says, you know what? I'm taking the day off. What, what can you do? You're going to find them. What are you going to find them? 50 yeah, grand.
3: Or are you going to them- tell
0: them we're going to get rid of you? No, you just paid them $228 million. But if Scott, if you find them, where are you going to find me. Fifteen hundred dollars. That's I know. That's what I mean. So it would be. It's the equivalent of you know me coming up to you and goes, Bubba, I'm really you're you're misbehaving. I'm really coming down hard on you. I need two cents. Exactly for those guys, right? That's what it is. That's what it is. It, it, it's very. It's become very difficult with. And and again, we're talking about the highest upper echelon guys. It's become very difficult to do anything if you're a coach or a team. What you're relying on now is the character of those guys, despite their millions and millions and millions, that the character will still sh- shine through. And a guy like Giannis, maybe he'll change now with this much money, but he's always looked like a guy who you would say, yeah, I, I believe that he will remain the guy who will do this. I, You know, James Harden has always been a guy that you, even going back before he was traded to Houston, that there were some, you know, he's a different kind of dude. It, yeah. you, you have two different kinds of people
3: and... You know, guys, well, I, I I'm guess... Gonna be, you know, I'm going to be kind of critical of our own here. And, and it's funny you talk about Giannis there, because you're right. Sometimes, you know, especially in the athletics world, in the entertainment world, money can change people. Yep. Um, but I would, and again, I'm going to kind of criticize our own here. I don't think that happens with Giannis. At 26 years old, he's 26 year old, and has enjoyed incredible success uh, as a two-time NBA MVP. And from what all you're reading here, he hasn't changed a bit. And I, I, I agree. think that's because... That, I think that's because he's... I hate to say it. He's not. He, he's not North American. He's a Nigerian Greek-born athlete who came from nothing. And I believe there's a certain appreciation from a guy like that that had nothing for half of his life. That uh, there might be a little a little bit more of appreciation than many North American athletes seem to have, even though they may have had come from, come, come from you know maybe poor or you know small small places or. You know, small starts in their career.
0: Could be. We'll see. Uh never even got around to uh the Canadian NHL division that uh, now looks like it may have to play all of its games in the States, but you know, we'll we'll get to that another day.
3: God uh, yawn, listen, always
0: Yon. Yawn <laughs> is no more talking about Yanis or Yanni. <laughs> uh we'll we play ourselves out with some Yanni music. Uh no, please don't do that, actually. Oh no, uh not good. Baba, thanks for doing this. Always appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks
3: for having me. <laughs>